This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, author, certified speaking professional, and CEO of Concord Leadership Group, Mark Pittman. Hey, what you drinking? This conversation is going to be one for the record books for a couple of reasons, for a couple of reasons. Number one, this is someone who has found the podcast and just absolutely connected at every level on the podcast. We're, we're friends on Facebook under Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership. We are connected in LinkedIn on Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership. We are conversating back and forth on Twitter. And yes, he is part of the VIP crew. And now he is on Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership. Please welcome Mark Pittman, CSP. Welcome to Whiskey Jazz and Leadership. How are you Thank doing, you man? Thank you so much. Well, long time listener, first time caller. Really excited <laughs> to be here. <laughs> man, I tell you, it is always great when I get to have a conversation with someone who has fallen in love with what we're what we're doing here. And that is our introduction. And it just gets even extra special when I actually get to meet them for the first time. Well, meet them virtually, right? So it's a virtual meet. So this, you know, uh, this is real life to me. Like face to face is real life, but this is also real life. I'm uh, even pre pandemic. I felt that. So. Hey, I, you know, this is about as real life as we can get in in a, in a lot of different relationships. But I got a feeling that that's going to change between the two of us real soon. So l- let's go ahead and get into this, man, because I am really, really excited about your background and what you're doing. But uh, as you know. And as my listeners know, we can't really even start this conversation until I ask an incredibly important question. And that question is, so what you drinking? I was so waiting for that. I am thrilled to know to be drinking Uncle Nearest, 1884. Uh, I just love the, the vanilla tones that come with this. And more importantly, the story, like I love the origin story of this of this bourbon. So I'm psyched to have it. Okay. All right. Well, Miss Well, Miss Victoria Butler, Miss Fawn Weaver. Okay. This we, we gotta get you. We gotta get you on this show because I also will be drinking Uncle Nearest. This time 1856. I'm gonna be drinking some 1856. And the story this is a hundred proof because of the level of this conversation, I had to go straight 
for the for the proof line right there. And so that's why I reached for the 1856. But I'll tell you, I've got a little bit of that 1820 sitting over there that I'm saving for just the right occasion. And I, I got really close to pulling the trigger. But my uh, uncle nearest master's blend, I'm saving that for Fawn Weaver and Victoria Butler. I've got to have someone from the uncle nearest organization. But for now, Let's 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 jump into this together, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna crack open this 56. Hold on one second. What? what? And I've, I'm gonna pour it into my uncle nearest glass. Great touch. Nice. All right. And uh, yeah, cheers, man. Cheers. So this glass was a gift of my son from East Fork. They do artisanal glasses for whiskey. So. Wow! I decided to really go, you know, pull out all the stops for for the podcast. Oh, fantastic! I love it. I love it. And uh, you know, I, I'm at a point where I drink. I drink Uncle Nearest really on like celebratory situations, only because it's getting so scarce. Unless I hit that 1884, I, I really can't be convinced that I'm going to find another bottle. So while I enjoy this, while I enjoy this, talk a little bit about your background. Uh, I, I know a little bit about this this CSP initial that's at the end of your name, so be sure to talk a little bit about that because that that has some significance that the casual passerby might not appreciate. So uh, go ahead and jump into your background, and I'm going to jump into this 1856. <laughs> well, most people, uh, my wife says I give a ten dollar answer when people want a, a ten cent answer. So, <laughs> so but for you, I'll I'll keep I'll keep going until you had enough to enjoy. I was uh, born at a young age. My parents' names were mom and dad. <laughs> yeah, I was I was raised in a weird family where we were assigned schoolwork, and then we were assigned Pittman family homework. So we went to school and the teachers assigned us schoolwork, but our parents, my parents started realizing that there was this thing called goal setting and there's this leadership skills and there are these um, dreaming and vision that they had never learned until they were in their thirties and forties. And they thought this is, this should be taught to our kids. So they assigned us books, tapes, and uh, they took us to seminars and rallies and different uh, hear motivational speakers. So I grew up listening to National Speakers Association motivational speakers and having to take notes. My wife jokes that when she met me in college, the she had to clear off a whole passenger seat of tapes because I was always having a tape in, trying to you know, feed my brain as much as I feed my stomach. And uh, so that always had me interested in leadership, which is why... Um, I'm here. I also brew my own beer. And so I was wondering what would I do next? And so distillation haven't just in case the federal government's listening, I haven't ever tried, but I know that that could happen. Uh, and, um, you know, jazz is something that it turns out happened to a roommate of mine in school, got me started to be interested, but then my son picked up the trumpet and found the CD that I had from my roommate in school. And, uh, I just love watching his journey as he's now a jazz musician making it. So, so many different paths crossed to be here today. It's really great. <laughs> but wow. my yeah. passion is leaders and and really helping leaders that are struggling with doubt know that they're not necessarily broken. They could be on the verge of greatness. That doubt could be a real gift. Our systems don't share that, and they don't. And it's not safe in most systems to to let your guard down. So, uh, that's why I love being an executive coach to be able to have that. Wow. I mean, we've got so many, so many points of, of, of commonality here. 
uh, I, you know, I'm just going to I'm going to jump right to the end and bring you into this conversation because I, I really want to get your perspective. And usually at the end, I ask everyone to tell me what they think. What are their thoughts about this funny name for a podcast, Whiskey Jazz and Leadership? And, you know, as, I, as I've said so many times, I, I put the three together because I like all three. But the metaphors say a lot uh, and they speak a lot to me. And the metaphor of whiskey is doing what you enjoy with those who enjoy it with you. The metaphor of jazz is getting from where you are to where you want to be, even in the absence of sheet music. And the metaphor for leadership is taking that first step. You're summoning the courage to take that first step. As scary as that first step usually is, nobody eats unless somebody kills something. And for me, those metaphors really do speak to what I do and how I try to do it. How does that metaphor work for you? Oh, this that's what attracted me to the podcast. I was looking for some leadership podcasts, and I'm not sure how I searched the term whiskey jazz and leadership. I don't know if I, maybe it was jazz and leadership, and I whiskey was like a bonus surprise inside. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, the as a beer guy, I always thought that distilled liquor was like a step up. I always, as a, I was a major gift fundraiser for most of my career prior to becoming a Franklin Covey certified coach. And I often had donors that wanted to educate me on single malt scotch, scotch which was my cross to bear, but I bore it. <laughs> it was like, okay, if you want to educate me, this is great. And then I started realizing how much it costs and how diverse it is. I'm a nerd. When I when I learn something, I go all in. So like, I'm on a very slow path to getting my sommelier of beer, which is called Cicerone. Wow. I've got the first level and I'm working on the second where you can tell what kind of malts and everything are in there. So whiskey was just a whole, you know, exponentially larger universe. So I decided to try to focus on bourbon and the storytelling and the traditions and and all the, the stuff that goes with that has been really exciting. So I love the whiskey part. Leadership, I, I'm just, I'm a leadership junkie. I've always am surprised that people don't see that somebody has to take action. Mm. Um, somebody needs to take action or encourage somebody else to take action, which is something that I'm learning. I'm shifting now from not being the one that's moderating the room, but being the one that's holding the space for somebody else to moderate. Yeah. But jazz, what's intriguing to me is, uh, can I share a story about my son? Please do. Please do. So my son was a, uh, he's a jazz trumpet player. We were, <laughs> my wife made him take music. All the kids take music lessons in fifth grade, even though we were homeschooling, the public school worked really well with us. And so he chose a trumpet. And he is one of the most disciplined people I've ever met. We were, we were at a speaker's event, gathering in, in Fort Lauderdale and he was going to stay because we were also going to go look at University of Miami for college for him. And he uh, was convinced by the people, you got to you got to go to the morning anyway, because there, there are New York Times bestselling authors there. There's all, people that you need to at least be exposed to. And so he did, but he downloaded the Uber app at noon because he said, Dad, I got to go back and I've got to put in another four or five hours of practice. Wow. He had this ethic of putting in the work. And so when he did his college essay to one of the colleges, he, they said, when do you just feel like you're in a zone when you're kind of in the flow? And I'm sure for most jazz programs, it was the kids saying, or even adults saying, when I'm improvising, I'm just kind of going, I don't know where it's going to end up. And I read his essay. It was when he was transcribing somebody else improvising. Wow. He was listening over and over and writing down the notes by hearing that note, this note. And he said he got lost in finding out, like when he listened to Roy Hargrove, you could hear Dizzy Gillespie's 
hints or, or, or influences. And you could hear hat tips to these other people too. And it was remarkable to me to think about the discipline that it takes to be able to just go with the flow. Wow. You got to know where the boundaries are. You got to know where the rules are. Even if you're going to break them, it's helpful to know where they are before you break them. So the discipline that goes into that, that's leadership too. That that's amazing, and 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 no no pressure on your son, but that's how Miles Davis got his start. You know, there there's a story that he tells about when he had when he first went to New York, and I think he must have been like 18 years old. He first went to New York. He was going there to play the trumpet, and he was going to get gigs, and that's what he was going there to do. But he wasn't making any money, and so the way that he made money was transcribing music for people who were playing. That's the way he did it. Basically it was someone would come in and hear Charlie Parker and another, uh, another saxophonist wanted to get the music to what Charlie Parker played. And so Miles Davis would transcribe and literally write the music of what Charlie Parker was playing for this other person who wanted to know. So it's and, Miles Davis. That was the, the connection for Caleb. He, when I was in school, when I was in high school, I went to a boarding school for the last two years. And my roommate, Aaron Garvey, had was a trumpet player and had a Miles Davis CD and a John Coltrane CD. Mm. And I didn't really know these. I didn't like jazz. It was just like, it was too complicated, whatever. But there was something about something, some kind of blue that was like, this is good. I, I, I got it. It was good enough for me to take it, buy my own copy and have it in college and just with our moves and everything. It turns out Caleb found that when he found the trumpet. And he heard stuff in there that I'm not musical. The kids, you know, hear me. If I teach them a song, they sing flat. Um, <laughs> people have told me I might be musical because they sing exactly an octave below where they should be. <laughs> so maybe, maybe there's something there. But um, he said it was listening to Miles Davis that he realized there's depth in this music and there's there's texture that I've never heard before. And that's what just kind of got him on fire for by middle school. He knew he wanted to be a jazz musician. Really? And we actually moved out of Maine because all the people in Maine were saying, yeah, you can do that as long as you have a side hustle, like doctor or lawyer or engineer. And they were killing his dream. And uh, one of the scariest moments uh, in my life, in my marriage, 28 years now, or 27 years, 28 years of knowing her at this point. But I heard my wife from another room say, look at your father. <laughs> like, I don't know what I do. He said, he writes books and he speaks to people and we eat. You can do this jazz thing. Give it a decade. So that's why we moved to Greenville, South Carolina, because there's a pretty cool jazz scene here that is inclusive of kids coming in and playing. And wow. it's just great. Hey, let, let's talk about that for a second, because I, I have heard so many stories about kids knowing exactly what they want to do at a young age. Kids don't know all the reasons why they can't do things. And so they pick what they think they would be excited about doing. And they say, if you ask anyone uh, below the age of 10, ask them what they want to be, they will tell you without hesitation what they want to be. It's not until they get uh, repeated FaceTime with grownups that they start to understand all the reasons why they can't be whatever they want to be. What is that, do you think? What is it that, that you know, I, I know the technical answers, but what do you think that is that, that causes adults to want to protect young kids so that they're willing to crush their dreams and their hopes? You're kinder than I am. Um, I think there may be initially a wanting to protect, but I think there are some people that take a glee and a delight in crushing other people's 
dreams, popping their balloons. The world's not like that. You can't do that. You can't succeed that high. It was really disheartening to see all the people in Caleb's life that that just lit right into his dream. And it wasn't just a, it's going to be hard or anything like that. It was, yeah. you can't do this. I think the the on the better side of the spectrum is the people that are, you, know, you get a little seasoned. It's sort of like, you know, people look at you and me, I don't know about you, but for me, living this executive coaching, speaking, writing dream, they don't realize that sometimes the dream's a nightmare. Mm. <laughs> There's sometimes sleepless nights. There's no safety net. And like you said, you eat what you kill. Even if you're vegan, you're killing a plant. I've heard you say that. So I appreciate your <laughs> friends for helping me with that. Um, I think that there's a desire to maybe help so they don't get disillusioned, but instead it becomes crushing. Mm. Here's the other part that I think is our system in the West is so built on your what you lack. It's not, hey, you got 97, it's worth the extra three points. You're great at these things, so we're just going to brush those off on your performance review, but here's where your deficit, you know, this is what we need to bring up. And we're so easily kind of brought into that, looking at the negative and looking at what we lack, that I think it's in the same vein as that of the world is harsh. It's a hard place and it's it's not going to just come to you. So you might as well just kind of bucket up now and get a real job. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, it's usually the people who were incredibly delusional at a very young, young age who we tend to marvel at. That those are the Tom Brady's of the world. You know, Tom Brady, delusional, dude, you, I mean, come on. I mean, what college did you go to again? And you dra got drafted, what, sixth round? Come on now. You, you can't be the kind of quarterback that you have been. It's not possible. Um, you know, Kobe Bryant, you can't do this thing that you've been doing for the past 20 years of your life. Muhammad Ali, you know, all of these people who were delusional enough not to listen to all these well-meaning adults are the ones that who we marvel at today, but yet we continue to, you know, again, you've given me permission to, to step further into this, to be careless with how we talk to kids who are just pursuing their dream. They're just going after what, what they believe they were put here on, on this planet to do. And the reality that we're living in is so different than the reality that we grew up in. Mm. Like there are kids that are making it on TikTok or YouTube. There's different ways to do this stuff. And it's not just kids. I'm showing my age a little there, but um, it, there are people, there are multiple ways to do this. And it, okay. So there won't be probably a, you know, a, a record contract, although you know, the records are coming back in some ways too. So yeah, I, I think that, yeah, I like the way you worded that. I've listened to a lot of your podcasts. I don't know that I know the answer to this though. When you were 10, what was it that you wanted to do? Yeah, gosh, you know, this is what's interesting about this. When I was 10, I wanted to be my grandfather. And my grandfather was a Baptist minister uh, on the Mississippi Delta. And I don't know what he did. I don't know what he was talking about, but I knew that he would stand in front of all these people and he would say some things and he would get a reaction from the entire congregation. And then he'd go to a different church and he'd say something totally different and he'd get a reaction out of that congregation. And I remember going to my grandparents' house 
And uh, that's when they had actual, you know, hardwired telephones and telephone stands and like the entire the entire room was built around the telephone. And I would take the telephone off of the stand and I'd put the telephone book on top of the stand and I'd open it up to, you know, Bob's mechanic or whatever. And I would just start saying things, you know, trying to pretend to be my grandfather. That's what I wanted to be. And, um, you know, like many of the uh, kids as you're coming up, I realized, well, you can't you can't make money at doing that. You, you need to have a real job. And so I got a real job and did pretty good. And and look at me now. And I'm I'm standing in the living room and <laughs> I pull the telephone stand out and I'm staying. I'm saying stuff to people trying to get a reaction from them. And so, um, I, you know, as far as far away from home as I've gone, I seem to have come back to that living room. Now, what about you? What did you want to be when you were when you were ten? You know, I've ten. It might have still been a doctor, but early in my life, I I have rarely met a stage I didn't like mm. and didn't want to be on. I've ever seen a microphone that I didn't want to talk into, to the embarrassment of my parents. There, there are times where I had no business talking into that microphone. Um, early in my life, I remember going to see, it was probably Zig Ziglar in a huge Coliseum. It could have been Les Brown. And just feeling like, similar to your experience of people's lives are being changed here. There's there's an energy in this space, and right around the same. So I want to. I haven't yet spoken to Coliseums. Uh, that's still there. I still have my vision board where I took out TD Jakes and put me in the video screen. <laughs> um, but um, the interesting part was I also came to faith about that time around in my early teens, and so I did end up pastoring a church for a few years. I think. Wow. I think God had some uh, mercy on the congregation that he let it be 15 years between the graduation from college to the the four years that I pastored. That was an interesting experience too, because every week you had to come up with logically, scripturally sound things that would also be applicable to people in a daily life that weren't interested in theology. They just wanted to pay the rent. Yeah. Um, and so the, the coaching aspect of that, I think was, fortunately, I had already been coach trained a bit and that really influenced my my pastoring uh, and in a way that was, I think, really awesome, uh, but really shocking to people because I wasn't going to beat him up. Uh, <laughs> yes, you fought one person. I remember one guy that had been a holiness Pentecostal church in there before and then gifted us the building. And this guy said, oh, pastor, I've, I've blown it. I said, why? He said, I just changed smoke a pack of cigarettes this weekend. I've been, I quit smoking and I, I hadn't smoked for a while. And then I just chain smoked a pack. And I said, how long were you smoking before that? Oh, probably about since I was a teenager. Okay, if you saw a kid learning to walk, I asked him, and the kid stumbled, would you insult them or would you cheer them on because they're learning to walk? And he said, well, I, I cheer them on. I said, you've trained your body to nicotine for decades. So, okay, yes, you had a bad weekend and you acknowledge that, you named it, good. You're learning to walk without nicotine. And so that was one of those moments of, I think I said something cool. That was cool. What was cooler was six months later, hearing him say that to somebody else when he was praying for them. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives. Cheers.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.